Lord, we do want to, again, just bow before your greatness this morning. Uh, Lord, as, as uh, Carson and Samantha just saying, when we face days where joy and tragedy collide and we're reminded that life is just a sigh, help us to rest within the wisdom of your plan. Lord, be reminded that your faithful love and mercy have no end. Thank, thank you, Lord, for the faithful love and mercy that you've given to us in your Son. Help us rest in your plan. Help us trust in your wisdom. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to grow us in that wisdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, take your Bibles this morning and open up with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. When I was a teenager, uh, long ago now, um, our church every summer would take our youth group on a, a camp, some sort of student camp over the summer. And usually we would end up going somewhere in Florida, to some beach place in Florida. And while we were there, one of the afternoons they would try to find something to fill the free time, something fun to keep the kids entertained and to burn off some energy. And so uh, one year we might go to a water park, uh, one year we might play putt-putt. Well, one of the years on one of the afternoons, they took us to this great big outdoor human maze. You know the kind of maze I'm talking about where it's just plank walls and it's massive and they turned us loose to go into the entrance of this maze and you had like two hours to sort your way through it to try to get out the other side. And man, we got there and everybody turned loose and really excited. This is going to be great. And it was for about 20 minutes. And it doesn't take long until you're reminded that you're in Florida in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the afternoon with all these walls, you can't feel a bit of wind and it feels like every path you go down is a dead end. Like you're never going to get out of it. You just want, it's not fun anymore, you just want to get out of the maze. Well, that's sort of what I feel like Solomon was going through when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Solomon went on this quest during the middle years of his life where he was determined he could find something that would give him joy. He could find something that would give him real satisfaction disconnected from God. And so Solomon started this journey filled with confidence. He was the wisest man in the world at the time. So if anybody's going to find their way out to the other side, it's going to be Solomon, right? But sadly, Solomon figured out real quick that every path he went down was a dead end. There is nothing this world offers us that leads to anything lasting. So that Solomon's conclusion about every path he went down was it's all vanity. You know, one of the interesting things they had at that, that maze we went to is just outside of the maze, there was this big tower. And if you weren't doing the maze, you could climb up into the tower, and from the top of the tower, you could look down and you could see everything in the maze. You could see every promising path that led to a dead end. You could, if you looked long enough, you could trace the winding path that finally led you to the exit. And if you were in the maze and you could convince somebody up in the tower to help you, they could guide you out of the maze. Well, that's what Solomon's trying to do for us in Ecclesiastes. Solomon, by God's grace, is trying to help us avoid all the dead ends of life. And by God's grace, Solomon is helping to show us the path of wisdom. So we're in a section of Ecclesiastes right now that is all about wisdom. I've mentioned before 
Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. Okay, wisdom is knowing how to apply God's truth to our lives so that we live a life that pleases God. And so he's been teasing out all the different ways that wisdom can and should show up in our lives. Well, as we come into chapter 8, most of what Solomon says in chapter 8 has to do with what the path of wisdom looks like when it comes to dealing with people in authority. What the path of wisdom looks like when it comes to dealing with people in authority. Now let's just be honest. Nobody came to church this morning thinking, I want to hear a sermon on how to deal with authorities. There's something in us that bristles even at the idea of being under authority. Don't you witness this very early with your children? Our children enjoy all the blessings of being under their parents' authority. They enjoy the meals, and they enjoy the safety, and they enjoy the security, and they enjoy all their needs being met. They, they like that part of authority, but there's a part of authority they don't like at all. They don't like someone telling them what to do. They don't like there being any rules. They don't like there being any accountability, and sadly, that's not just a problem for children, is it? It's a problem for adults. We like the blessings of having a job. We just don't like a boss being able to tell us what to do. We bristle under authority. And the reason why we bristle under authority, you ready? It's because we're sinners. It's a problem that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the story. God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in this wonderful garden where Every single need is met. They enjoy all the blessings of being under God's authority. They love the gifts of being under God's authority. But there's a reminder of God's authority in the garden. What is it? There's one tree that God puts in the middle of the garden and says, that tree is off limits. And how do Adam and Eve respond to that? It doesn't take long before the serpent comes slithering along and says, hey, If you eat from that tree, you won't have to be under God. You can be God. And they jumped in with both feet. They rejected God's authority, and the rest is history. We still deal with the consequences of that rejection of authority. And we still sense the same internal compulsion, don't we? We don't like God's authority over us. We don't like the idea that God can tell us what to do. And we sure don't like the idea that other people can tell us what to do. How dare anyone hold me accountable? How dare someone exercise authority over my life? Again, you see it early on when we bristle against our parents' authority. And then as we get older, we bristle against a boss's authority. And we kick against the government's authority. And we rail against a police officer's authority authority. And ultimately, we resist human authorities because we have rejected God's authority. But wisdom tells us there has to be authority. It's how God has ordered our world. God has ordained authority in every area of life, in family life, and in church life, and in civil life. And recognizing those authorities And responding appropriately to those authorities is a big part of living a wise life that honors God. Just to drive that point home, I want to read six or seven verses of Scripture with you in a row. 
And I just want you to get the point of how much living a life that obeys God and pleases God, how much of that has to do with responding appropriately to the authorities that God's placed in our lives. So just listen to some of these verses. Here's where it starts. James chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's the ultimate authority. Who, who are we ultimately called to submit to? God. So is God's authority the only one? No, God has ordained lesser authorities. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. So Titus 3 and 1 Peter, what are those about? It's about God's call that we respond appropriately to civil authority. Keep going. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. What, what's that about? It's about how God calls us to respond to spiritual authorities. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What's that about? It's about authority in the home. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, we could read more of those. But do you see how a big part of walking with God has to do with submitting to the authorities that God has ordained in our lives? And that's the issue Solomon's going to address this morning. So we're going to look at all of chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. We stopped at verse 1 last week. And we're going to look at it under two big headings. Number one... We're going to see wisdom for dealing with authorities. Let's read verses 2 through 9. Wisdom for dealing with authorities. We're in Ecclesiastes 8, picking up in verse 2 and going through verse 9. Solomon writes, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there's a time and judgment. Though the misery of man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that's done under the sun. There's a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Now notice how Solomon starts this section. Solomon says, keep the king's commandment. Now, immediately as Americans, we're going to go, we don't have a king. We got rid of that 250 years ago. 
But the principle still applies, right? We're called to submit to appropriate civil authority. The way it would work in Solomon's day is people would often be required to pledge an oath to the king that they were under. You might think of us saying the pledge of allegiance. Well, Solomon is saying you keep that pledge as if you made it to God. It's the same point Paul makes in the New Testament. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 13. Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Notice the line in that. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Solomon's saying, or Paul's saying, that God is the one who has woven authority in our world. God's the one who's designed it this way. So that authority in general and civil authority, as he's describing it here, is given to us as a blessing from God. What's the alternative to authority? Anarchy. And so he's saying authority is given by God as a blessing. So we're to honor all appropriate authorities as being ordained by God. And if I could just quickly say to our, our parents here, one of the gifts that you can teach your children early on is that they would learn how to submit to appropriate authority in their life. So if, if your kids early on learn that they don't have to submit to your authority as a parent, they're not going to magically start submitting to authority when they enter the workforce one day. They're not going to magically submit to authority when they get pulled over or when they are sitting in a classroom underneath a teacher one day. So you help prepare your children to walk the path of wisdom in part by teaching your children to submit to appropriate authority. If you allow your children to be in the habit of brushing your authority aside, you are preparing your children to walk the pathway of a fool. So Christians submit to God-ordained authority. Christian children learn to submit to their parents. Christian ladies learn to respect their husbands. Christians aren't belligerent toward their bosses. We don't rail against police officers. That's not how God has called his people to live. Okay, so does that mean that Christians are called to submit to human authorities no matter what? No, that's not what it means, is it? Because God is the ultimate authority. So if some human authority commands you to do something that God forbids, or on the other hand, if some human authority forbids you from doing something that God commands... Your obligation is to obey God if that means you have to disobey the human authority. We just read in our Bible reading plan, we were reading Acts this past week, and you might remember the story in Acts chapter 5, where the authorities in Jerusalem arrest the apostles. Do you remember that story? They call all the apostles in, and their instruction to the apostles is, we forbid you from preaching about Jesus anymore. Well, those guys have authority. So do the apostles obey that authority? Do you remember what they said? They said, we must obey God rather than man. Meaning if there comes a time where 
human authority bumps up against God's authority, our responsibility is to obey God and in that instant to disobey man. So, if, if your employer were to require you as a Christian to wear a gay pride pin at work, you would be called to obey God rather than man. If your employer were to require you to, to lie or fudge an expense report, you would be required to obey God rather than man. Christian ladies, if your husband were to tell you he doesn't want you to go to Lord's Day worship anymore, you would be required to obey God rather than man. If, if the day were to come where the government were to say, you're not allowed to preach certain passages, that's deemed hate speech. I would have an obligation to obey God rather than man. That's the point that the Bible makes. There, there's a wonderful example of this in the Old Testament. You remember in the Old Testament the story of Daniel? Where Daniel serves under two wicked empires. Daniel serves under the Babylonian Empire, empire first, then he serves under the Persian Empire, two godless regimes. Yet, Daniel serves both of those empires very well. He submits to authority. He serves the king. He develops a wonderful reputation as a skilled, hard, faithful worker. Until the day comes where the government requires him to do something that is at odds with what God says. You remember the government forbids Daniel from praying to Yahweh. And on that instance, what does Daniel do? Daniel goes home and he opens his windows and he gets on his knees and he prays. Even though he knows that it's putting his own life in jeopardy, he disobeys the government in order to obey God. And let me add this. One of the interesting things we have as Americans is that our highest civil authority, listen now, our highest civil authority as Americans is not a governor. Our highest civil authority is not a mayor. It's not a legislature. It's not even a president. Our highest civil authority as Americans is a document. Our highest civil authority in American government is the Constitution. So if some lesser authority were to begin ordering things that contrast that higher authority, if some lesser authority were to begin doing things that violate what we have from that greater authority, we would have a right then to resist the lesser authority. This is something that Christians in America haven't thought about for years, but it's very um, applicable today. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, said that since, since tyranny is satanic, Schaeffer said, to not resist tyranny is to resist God. Or to say it the other way, uh, Francis Schaeffer said, to resist tyranny is to honor God. Okay, so, so the Bible's point is not that Christians just have to submit to any civil authority in an unqualified way, regardless of what they might order us to do as, not as, as long as it's not blatantly wicked. You realize we're in an independent country now because there were a group of people, mostly Christians, 250 years ago now, who believed that the British government had overstepped its God-ordained bounds and had become tyrannical. Okay, so, so there's a place for that in what God has ordained. So our default setting as Christians is we're respectful toward authorities. We are patient with those in authority. We be behave humbly toward those in authority. As much as we can, we submit to those in authority. 
But the Bible doesn't require unqualified compliance. And we also recognize that God has ordained different spheres of authority. You recognize that, right? There's the civil sphere. There's the family sphere. There's the church sphere. And there are different authorities in each one of those spheres. And those different authorities don't have the right to move outside of that sphere. Let me illustrate it for you. So God has given elders authority in the life of the church. So if you're a member of this church body, you're required to submit to the leadership in church life. Okay, so if I were to come to you this week and say, hey, you're a member of our church, and I noticed when I was at your house that your walls are painted white. I want you to paint your walls green this week. And my car needs an oil change. I'd like you to come pick it up and go get my oil change for me this week. Would you be obligated to submit to that? But wait, wait a second. Aren't you required to submit to the elders? Yes, in the appropriate sphere. Our, our elders have authority in the sphere of overseeing spiritual life in the church body. Right In the same way, if the government were to step in and say, hey, you're not allowed to meet together anymore on the Lord's Day for worship. That would be the government overstepping its bounds, moving into a sphere that it doesn't have authority over. If, if the government were to say to you parents this week, hey, from now on, you have to put your kids to bed at 10.30 every night and feed them six Oreo cookies and a box of Kool-Aid before they go to bed. Government has authority. Paul says submit to authority. So do you have to comply with that? You see, that would be the government stepping outside of its God-ordained sphere into the family sphere, moving into an arena that it does not have authority in. Okay, so there's lots of things to think about with this. But again, our default setting when it comes to dealing with authorities, our default setting as Christians is we show honor toward those in authority. Okay, that's the point. Let's, let's keep going. Look at, verse, look at how he says it in verse 3. He says, do not be hasty to go from his presence. I think the point there is, don't constantly be trying to squirm out from every authority in your life. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. For he, the king, the authority, does whatever he pleases. Don't take your stand for an evil thing. Be thoughtful about the heels you're willing to die on when it comes to dealing with people in authority. Or let me say it this way. Don't be the person, and we all have dealt with this kind of person at work or on a team or in school. Don't be the person who no matter what comes from the authority, you're going to kick against it. Everybody knows the person at work. It doesn't matter what the boss says. They're going to complain about it, and they're going to whine to somebody else about it, and they're going to give the boss a hard time about it. Don't be that person. That's not how God, God's called Christians to behave. And then verse 4, he says, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He's saying, remember the power that those in authority have. You, you can be belligerent with that police officer, but remember, he has the power at some point to arrest you. You can decide that you're going to constantly argue with your boss, but remember, he has the authority to fire you. So if you're hell-bent on challenging every authority in your life, you are setting yourself up for a hard life. And then verses 5 and 6. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. 
And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. He says a wise man discerns time and judgment. That means a wise man realizes everything has its time. There's a right way and a right time to address problems with those in leadership. There's a time to hold your tongue, and there's a time to speak up. So if you're under a bad leader who's increasing your misery, he's saying be patient, don't be hasty. A wise person discerns the time. Verse 7. For he, this is the he here I think is the king, the authority. For he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? I think he's making a point here. I think he's flipping sides. He's just made the point that we're under authority deal with that fact, but now he's reminding us that those in authority have limitations. The king doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow any more than you do. The president can't read the future any more than you do. So this is sort of a check. If you find yourself in a position of authority in life, what can happen because of our sin nature is people in authority can start feeling like they are mini-gods, M-I-N-I, mini-gods. It can start going to your head. And it's like Solomon is reminding us here, it doesn't matter what authority you have, you are still very limited. You don't know what the future holds. In fact, look at how he says it in verse 8. No one has power over the Spirit to retain, to hold on to the Spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Do you see what he's saying? No matter what authority you might have, you know what you don't have the authority to do? You can't hold on to your spirit. What happens when a person dies? Their spirit departs from their body. And it's like he's saying, it doesn't matter how powerful you think you are, you can't stop that from happening. You can't prevent death. And even more, you don't even know when the day of death is going to come. No matter how much power you have, you're going to die. What happened to Stalin and Lenin and Mao and Hitler? They all died. And you don't even know when the day of death is going to come. He describes it in verse 8. Like we're soldiers who are marching into this battle with death. And it doesn't matter who you are, you can't go AWOL from that battle. You will one day fight and lose the battle with death. So you might think you're the most powerful person in Ware County, Georgia. That's not saying a lot, but you might think you are. You might have the power to order around a thousand employees. You might have more authority and more money than most people could shake a stick at. And yet Solomon is saying to you, remember how weak you really are. You can't even stop death. You don't even know when the day of death's coming. So in the middle of all your ordering and meeting and planning and supervising, make sure you prepare yourself for that day. Are you ready to give an account of your life to the God who gave you life? And then he ends this section in verse 9 with, All this I've seen and applied my heart to every work that's done under the sun. There's a time in which one man rules over another to his own 
hurt. So he's making the point. We're under authority. We have an obligation before God to be respectful and honoring toward authority. But he's letting us know that's especially hard now because authorities are all fallen. And the tendency now with fallen human authorities is to use authority selfishly. So, so rather than God-ordained authority in this world so that those in authority would use it for the good of those who they are leading. But now the tendency because of sin is to use authority selfishly. To use authority that actually harms those that we are leading. So this passage is, is doing two things. First, it's warning us to check ourselves if we are in authority. And then it's, it's cautioning us to make sure we live wisely in those areas where we're under authority. So let me just say this before I go to the next point. So Christian, in those areas where you find yourself under authority, authority at work, authority in the home, authority in the church, authority in civil society, do you behave toward that authority in a way that is distinctly Christian? Is your attitude toward your boss at work different because you're a follower of Jesus? Is your attitude, young people, if you're a follower of Jesus as a child, is your attitude toward your parents different because you're a follower of Jesus? Okay, that's the point of this first half. Here's the second part. Number two, he gives us wisdom for dealing with life's perplexities. Wisdom for dealing with life's perplexities. Pick up in verse 10 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked, and there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. So, I commended enjoyment. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that's done on the earth, even though one, one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he'll not be able to find it. Now here's what's happening. Talking about the sufferings we sometimes experience under evil authorities seems to turn Solomon's mind to some of the other challenges, some of the other enigmas of life. And so here's the first enigma. Verse 10, he says, then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also 
is vanity. So notice, Solomon describes a wicked man who goes in and out of the place of holiness. So this is somebody who is overtly wicked, but they still do religious things. They still have a sort of religious veneer in front of their godlessness. And Solomon says, then the day comes where this wicked man dies. And you'll notice the New King James says, and when they die, they're forgotten. But that's probably not the best wording. If you have the ESV or the NIV, you'll notice that it says, when this person dies, they were praised in the city where they had done these things. In other words, it's the picture of this wicked person. The day comes where they die, and they're lauded as a hero in the city. Now think of how often we witness this. Think of the life of some celebrity in America who lives a overtly debauched life. This is somebody who's a womanizer, maybe an overt criminal, um, maybe a deadbeat dad. He's some sort of overtly wicked person and then this celebrity dies and how does society react? Like he was a hero. Politicians want to show up and speak at the funeral and they have to use the Staples Center in L.A. to bring in the hordes of people for the memorial service. A wicked man dies and then society praises him like he was some sort of hero. And Solomon's looking at it and just sort of shaking his head like, what in the world has our world come to? And then he continues with another enigma in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Solomon's saying when people do evil things and get away with it, what does that inspire in society? More evil. So let's say this afternoon a group of folks go to the Kroger here in town and they walk inside and just start clearing out the shelves. They fill their pockets and load their carts and they haul all of it outside without paying. They steal all of these goods, load it up into their car. No one stops them. Police officers never get involved. There's no accountability. What does that inspire? It inspires more people to show up at Kroger next week. And not just Kroger, at Walmart. And it inspires evil. Because God has given authorities the right to punish evil in order to restrain evil. But what if evil isn't punished? Then evil in a society begins to overflow its banks. And not just if evil is ignored, Solomon's making the point here, that what if punishment is endlessly delayed? I mean, think about it, parents. If your four-year-old does something wrong, then they need to be disciplined for. The most effective way to discipline them is to do it immediately. It doesn't do any good if they do something they need to be disciplined for and you forget about it and then three weeks later you go, oh, you did that at church three weeks ago on Sunday and you disciplined them then. That is no good. The punishment needs to be close to the offense in order to be a restraint. And that's what Solomon is saying. I'll just give you an example in society. So in our society, the time, do you know the time between when a person is found guilty of murder, sentenced to be executed, and when that execution is actually carried out. You know what the average time is? Almost 20 years. And Solomon's point is when, when punishment just gets delayed forever or not carried out at all, it's, it brings terror to the society and evil flourishes. 
verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know. Now just pause there for a minute. Most of Ecclesiastes is Solomon saying, I saw. He's, he's telling us what he witnessed. I saw the evil do this. I saw this. I saw this. But now you come to verse 13 and Solomon says, But here's what I know, that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Solomon's saying, yeah, you may see a lot of evil and injustice in our world. It might seem like the wicked are being praised while the righteous are being forgotten. But here's what we know is God's people. No matter what it might seem like now, in the end, it will not go well for the wicked. And no matter what it might seem like now, in the end, it will go well for those who fear God. So our court systems might not get it right now, but one day everything will be made right in God's courtroom. One day absolutely every wrong will be righted. One day absolutely every single sin will be accounted for. Now make sure you take that to heart. That doesn't just mean the sins of Bernie Madoff and O.J. Simpson will be accounted for. That means one day every sin you and I commit will also be accounted for. The Bible is crystal clear that in the end, there will not be a single sin that's forgotten by God. In the end, every single sin will be fully punished. Now, th that should terrify us. Because I've committed thousands of sins. And do you know what one single sin deserves? A single sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. And not a single sin is going to be ignored. So here are our options. You will either face the wrath of God for your own sins, or you look to Jesus who took that wrath for you. You'll either experience the wrath of God being poured out for you, on you, justly for eternity in hell for your sins against Him, or you look to Calvary where Jesus hung and took the wrath of God in your place. And you humble yourself before him and you acknowledge your sin and turn from it. And you look to him in a trembling trust. The way Solomon says it is you fear God. This world's a mess, but one day God is going to make it all right. And then verse 14. There's a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. Here's another one of life's perplexities. Solomon's saying so often it seems like life gets turned upside down. The righteous get the life the wicked deserve and the wicked get the life the righteous deserve. Here's a simple illustration. So a drunk driver is driving down the highway, crosses the middle line, and hits a family of four going the other way. The whole family of four dies, and the drunk driver walks away without a scratch. That, that's the sort of thing Solomon is describing. He's going, you look at life so often, and it doesn't seem fair. So often, what happens, it looks unjust. And you hear our world say this all the time. Life's not fair. And we wouldn't disagree with them. 
But every time I hear a world, listen now, every time I hear a world that rejects God start complaining about things not being fair, I want to go, hold on a second. Because you realize if there's no God, then what you're saying doesn't even make sense to start with. Because if, if everything in the universe is random, if we're just skin sacks with fizzing molecules that bump into each other and everything is blind chance, then who are you to say what fairness is? Who are you to say how things ought to be? There, there's no such thing as ought if there's no God. This is what C.S. Lewis struggled with. There was a time in C.S. Lewis's life when he was drifting toward atheism. Because Lewis said he looked at this world and there was so much injustice and there was so much suffering and he couldn't understand in such an unfair world how there could be a good God. And Lewis said then it dawned on him that his whole argument depended on there being a God. Because his whole problem was that there's so much unfairness and injustice. And Lewis said it finally dawned on him that if there's no absolute external standard of righteousness and goodness and justice then the whole idea that things are unjust doesn't make sense. There has to be a standard of what's right, how things ought to be for that complaint to rise in the first place. So that, that gnawing in your heart that says, man, so often things aren't fair, that, that, is, that is an echo of the fact that you're made in the image of a fair, righteous, just God. And one day he'll make things right. So how do we deal with things in the meantime? All sorts of challenges and perplexities and enigmas in life. He's told us it's not going to be this way forever. One day God's going to make all things new. So in the meantime, do we just sit in our pews and grit our teeth and bear it? No, look at verse 15. In the meantime, here's how we're called to live. So I commended enjoyment. Get this, God, Christian, commands you to enjoy your life. I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life which God gives him under the sun. Solomon does this so often. He doesn't give us all the answers. He tells us it's not going to be this way forever. And then in the meantime, Solomon says, Christian, enjoy life. Don't let the perplexities of life prevent you from enjoying life. Every day of life you have is a gift from God, and He only gives you so many of them. So don't just endure it, enjoy it. And recognize that every day of your life, God gives you a thousand graces. Every day of your life, God kindly gives you a thousand things to enjoy. Hundreds of simple pleasures. Maybe it's a, a good cup of coffee when you get up in the morning. Or parents with little kids, when your four-year-old gets up and is still sleepy and before they get wound up and they're willing to crawl up in your lap and snuggle for a few minutes. Or, or a good night out with your husband or wife. Or a good conversation with a friend or a good meal or a good day fishing on the river, a good day at the beach with the family. Every one of those we recognize as a gift from God's hand and we enjoy it to the glory of God. That's how God calls us to live. Listen, if you are always dour and depressed and 
feeling sorry for yourself and struggling and complaining about how bad our world is, your life is not glorifying God. God calls us to trust Him with the things we don't understand and to enjoy what He's given us. That's the command of verse 15. Let's finish it out, verses 16 and 17. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on the earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, in other words, he is spending all of his time trying to figure this all out, he says, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. You see where Solomon lands? We're never going to figure it all out. You're never going to understand all of God's ways. It's the verse I quoted earlier in Isaiah. His ways are as far above ours as the heavens are above the earth. So we have to be content not having all the answers. There's something that I cannot figure out as a Christian. I just have to trust that it's above my pay grade. And trust God. We're not called to walk by, by sight. We're called to walk by faith. Let me give you an illustration of what that looks like. We've talked about Jonathan Edwards before. Jonathan Edwards was the great pastor and theologian of the First Great Awakening. And in 1758, Jonathan Edwards was named president at Princeton. And he was following, the president just before him had been his son-in-law. And Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law had died from smallpox. Smallpox was a huge issue at the time. And so his son-in-law died. Jonathan Edwards becomes president at Princeton in January of 1758. He is in the prime of his life. And right after he got to Princeton, I mean within a month or two, he decided to take a new smallpox inoculation that was being offered. And he, was, he wanted to take it because he hoped that by taking this inoculation, it would encourage other people and it might bring smallpox under control. And so he took the smallpox inoculation. He had complications from it. And in March of that year, so less than three months after becoming president, Jonathan Edwards died left behind his wife, Sarah, who was only 48 years old, left behind a whole family of children. And you think, well, Jonathan Edwards was at the prime of his life. If he'd had 20 more years, think of all that he could have written and all the good he could have done for the First Great Awakening and all the good things he could have done for Princeton Seminary. Well, why would somebody like that die? How do you deal with a perplexity like that? Listen to what his wife, Sarah, wrote. She wrote to one of her daughters about the death of her husband, of the daughter's father. And Sarah Edwards wrote, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are given to God, and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah. That, that's where we end as Christians. We are given to God. There we are, and there we love to be. So where we don't understand, we trust him, and we leave ourselves in his hand. It's the song that Samantha and Carson sang earlier. 
All our days are held within your hands. Your perfect love and favor have no end. We rest within the wisdom of your plan. Everlasting God. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Let me encourage you to do two things as you're there in your seat. To go to the Lord yourself. We always need to respond when God speaks. And do two things. One, evaluate your heart's response toward authority. If you have ingested what our society says about kicking against authority, that the whole uh, rebel idea is a good thing, it is not a godly thing. And ask God to help you respond to authority in a way that is distinctly Christian. Repent where you see yourself not doing that. And then secondly, how are you dealing with the perplexities of life, the things you don't understand? Here's Solomon saying, you're not going to understand it. God's ways are higher than our ways, so enjoy the life that God's graciously given you and trust yourself in his hand.